glorify your name here this morning, God, that you would uh, incline our hearts towards you, that you would push our desires towards you. I pray that you would speak through Michael. Um, I pray that you would just open up our eyes to see more of you this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amy and Jacob and Brandon. Um, Reminding us, if you if you notice the the transition, uh, we first sang a song that really was a, in one sense, a, a song of God to us. It was all from God's perspective. Um, that there's a there is a firm foundation, and because of that firm foundation, then the next two songs al- al- allow us to magnify His name as um, the one who deserves all glory and power, uh, the one who has a dominion forever and ever. Um, and then a reminder that there is, uh, there really is no one like Him. That our God really is greater than everything that we can come up against, because there is that firm foundation that, uh, that no matter what comes our way, we are secure in His hands. Um, Linda has a bulletin. Uh, there's some blank space for you to take notes. Uh, we would love for you to be in the the habit of. Um, bringing your own note-taking because bulletins tend to end up in the trash. Uh, it's always good to go back sometimes after a, a period of time and, and look through what God has taught us. So I would encourage you to um, to take notes, but do so in something that you can hold on to and keep. Unless you've got one of those cool little three-hole punch things that you can, like, they're real small and have one of those little notebooks, you can put those bulletins in there. You could do that, I suppose, as well. Um, we are in the middle of a series uh, that we will finish at the end of this month in First Peter. We will come to the end of that uh, on the 31st, uh, if all goes well. And we don't stop today a fourth of the way through what I was planning on getting through. Um, so we're coming to the end. Uh, and all along we have, we have said that the message is, and again it's up here and it's also in your bulletin, um, that Peter is writing to his readers and really to us to teach them how to live um, where they don't belong when they're facing difficulties because, because of what God has done for us through the cross, through His Son. Um, and he continues that <clears throat> this morning. We have been, um, in really verses 7 through 11, in the long section that began in chapter 2 when he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter revisits that idea of glorifying God and, and wraps up this long section of <clears throat> our behavior matters because people are watching. Our behavior matters in the family. Our behavior matters as we relate to those that. Uh, that we work with, slaves and masters, husbands and wives. And more specifically, our behavior matters in the body of Christ. And he finishes up um, this morning with these words, beginning in chapter 4, verse 7. Let's read those. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength 
that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would use Your Word to strengthen our hearts today, to challenge us in our behavior as we relate to one another, but ultimately, God, to remind us that You do deserve all glory and power. Open our ears that we might hear clearly. Father, we ask that You would keep us from distraction. Father, that You would open our hearts to, to understand and accept Your Word, and ultimately, God, that You would change our wills that would be like You. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are two main sentences in this passage, the very first one and the very last one. Everything else is either a participle or uh, an imperative or something that's part of a secondary clause. There are two main sentences in this passage. The first is, the end of all things is at hand. And the last one is, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. The end of all things has come near. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And those are the guiding principles of this passage. They tell us the purpose of the passage and they give us the motivation for what Peter then calls us to do in the rest of verses 7 through 11. They tell us the purpose of why we're doing what we're doing and they give us the motivation. First of all, the purpose. Notice right before that, um, he says all of this stuff in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then he repeats it again to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Our purpose, your purpose, my purpose in everything that we do is to glorify God. Anything else that may be a sub-purpose to that fits in under that. Everything in this book that God calls us to do has as its utmost purpose to bring Him glory. And so if, if we've got anything else running through our mind, if I want to do this for... Maybe it's good things. For the good of someone else, that's fine. As long as you recognize it, underlying that, underlying my doing good or your doing good for somebody else, what underlies that is that the only reason that is good is if it glorifies God, if it brings Him honor and glory. That's your purpose. That's why you've been placed on this planet. Anything else is a, a sub-purpose under that ultimate purpose. We bring God glory by everything that we do. They will ultimately bring Him glory as well, yes. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will, in one sense, glorify His justice. When they, when it is, when, when the final books are reckoned, um, those that have not accepted His Son as Lord and Savior, ultimate justice will be done and that glorifies His character. His character is such that justice has to be a part of, of His character and the way that the world works. And in the final reckoning, that final justice will bring Him glory. So yes, even, even non-believers, that is their purpose. But He says at the end, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So here's my first question. 
What does he mean by that? How do we glorify God through Jesus Christ? What does he mean by that? And that's a question you can answer. glorify God through Jesus Christ by depending upon Him for everything that we do. Jesus is talking to His disciples in the upper room in John 15 and in verse 8 He says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Well, if you back up, right, how do we bear fruit? Back up to verse 5 of John 15. Who knows that verse? How do we bear fruit? Somebody said something. Someone's whispering. How do we bear fruit? Yeah, we abide in Christ. It's a a moment-by-moment dependence upon Him to do the things that He's called us to do. Now, if you're like me, there are some things that I think, I'm pretty good at that. Right? I've, I've done it enough that I really don't have to abide in Christ for this because, well, I've got it figured out. And if I do anything, even if I do it well in the eyes of men, if it was done without dependence upon Christ, it doesn't bring glory to God. That doesn't mean God can't use that. He often does use our failures and inability to abide in Him to bring good for His people. But that action in and of itself doesn't glorify God because it was done in my own strength. Everything that we do, and that's hard because that forces us to think about Him often to be mindful of His gifts, of His goodness, of His grace, of His provision, of His power to do the things that we do. There's a really good chance that I could stand up here and do what I do week in and week out, and you may or may not be aware of whether I was depending upon God that particular morning or not. It might sound the same. It might look the same. We're good at that. But you know, and I know, you know in your heart, I know in my heart, when we're, we haven't thought about God for the things that we do. We just said, I've got this. So we glorify Him in all that we do. That's our purpose. And the only way we do that is through His Son. So now back up to verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so that's the motivation. For what he's fixing to talk about, the motivation is, the end of all things is, you could translate that, is drawing near. Same Kind of same language that John the Baptist and Jesus in one sense used. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? In other words, time is short. 
It'd be like if I said it's about to rain. Some of you won't get this. It's about to rain, so you need to bring in the clothes off the line. Some of us don't. I can still remember being being little. Well, even when we lived in, we had a clothesline in, in, uh, in Texas. Um, but I can remember being little. There was a clothesline on Baker Street behind the house. was a clothesline, and I can remember. It didn't rain very often in Texas, but if it did, get clothes off the line. Right? That's the motivation. It's about to rain, therefore, Jesus says, or Peter says, the time is near. Therefore, here's how I want you to behave. Because time is short. Why is that a motivation? Why is the, the shortening of time a motivation for what he's fixing to call them to do? And, and by the way, he's going to call them to prayer. He's going to call them to love, to hospitality, and to service. Why is the time being short, why is that a motivation for those things? The Lord desires none to be lost. Though in the context, there's two things going on. He's talking about all of these things in reference to the body of Christ, but the body of Christ is a witness to the world, so yes, that works. What were you going to say? I just said there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. And nobody in this room is guaranteed tomorrow. We're not. We know that all too well. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. You know, I want to work on that love thing or that service thing or that hospitality thing. We'll start that next week. When, when we get our ducks in a row, when we get when, 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 right, then I can start being the things that Peter calls me to. Our motivation is time is short. Now's a, a good time to do the things he's called us to do. <laughs> And so then, in the rest of that passage, he talks about what we are to do. Therefore, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Um, it's interesting, he doesn't start out with something that seems to be an action that I have for you, though hopefully we've talked enough about prayer in here that we know that, that my prayers, and that I think Peter's talking about certainly prayers for one another in the body. But he starts out with this command about being sober-minded and being self-controlled. Um, to be self-controlled really means to keep one's head, to, to not lose oneself in the midst of persecution or in the midst of the life's troubles or in the midst of distraction or the midst of temptation. It's, it's to keep your head on straight, right? Who, who knows where this quote is from? Take during the Depression, for instance. You and I were the only ones that kept our heads. Yeah, good job. Yeah, Potter is talking to George Bailey. You and I were the only ones that kept our heads. And then he goes on and says, you saved the building alone, I saved everything else. And George says, you stole everything else. But how did they keep their heads? What did they, in the midst of the distraction of the depression, runs on the bank, everybody panicking, how did George in particular keep his head? There's a whole scene in there that's very reminiscent of how he did that. Number one, he called for everybody to pull together. We're in this together. What else was he willing to do? Sacrifice. He was willing to sacrifice. Right? He, he, he 
talked over and over again about the need. We're in this together. We can survive it together. But he was also willing to give of his own money, his honeymoon money, actually, for the sake of someone else. So part of what it means to keep your head is to be willing to sacrifice for somebody else. Part of what it means to keep my head is I'm willing to give for the sake of, and he says prayers. We'll talk about that in a second. Second thing he says is to be sober or be sober-minded. Literally, that means not drunk, but it's often used, like a lot of things, figuratively throughout the Bible and other ancient Near Eastern uh, literature. What's interesting is it's often used for athletes who put themselves in a training regiment for the sake of success on the track or whatever they ran down. I don't know if it was a circle or not back then. So to be sober-minded is, is to be disciplined for the sake of success. And both of those, Peter says, are for the purpose of prayer. So, question. You don't have to answer this one. Do you have a discipline in place that allows you to be successful in prayer? Do you have a discipline in place that allows you to be successful in your prayer life? Or is it one of those things that if it happens, it happens? Sometimes better, sometimes worse. But are you like that athlete who is training for success? And I would say, and I think the Bible seems to point that out, is that that's the most important thing that we can do. It enlivens and empowers everything else Peter is going to talk about, our prayers, our hospitality, and our service. It is that act of depending upon Jesus Christ for glorifying God in one sense. Because there's a lot of things that keep us from praying. What are the things that keep us from praying? keeps us from praying? Schedule. Our schedules. Now we have, a, we have a schedule and prayer is not part of that. That's a, we've orchestrated our lives away from praying. What else keeps us from praying? Sin. Sin. I don't want to talk to God today after that, right? A failure to, to understand, a failure to keep our head and understand the firm foundation that we sang about. You, you really can go to Him after that. But sin numbs us and, and makes us think that we don't really need that or that we can't or whatever those reasons are. What else? Distraction. Distractions. Thankfully, in North Carolina so far, after four years, I don't have allergies here. But I did in Texas at regular times. And there were certain parts of the year, get in the morning and sit down and, and read and pray. And I would get up ten times to go get a Kleenex. And finally, this thought, why don't you put a Kleenex box where you read the Bible and pray? <laughs> Be less distraction, right? I mean, it's simple things like that that keep us from praying. That just shows you I'm not overly, it takes me a while to be, to, to be smart, but 
Some of you may have that trouble. I, I don't know. One of the things that you need to think about this week is, if I'm not disciplined for prayer, what do I need to do? What, what habits do I need to begin? What structure do I need to add to my life so that I spend time in prayer on a regular basis? And who can I share that with so that they will ask me at the end of the week, hey, how's that going? Some of you need to do that. Some of you need to write that down. I need to commit to spending time with God in prayer on a daily basis. And I need to structure my life in such a way that that actually happens. This is not just for adults, by the way, those of you that are kids, teenagers, even younger than that. The quicker you begin a good habit, the easier it is to keep that habit when your life gets turned upside down. If you're in the habit in your home of spending time in the Word and prayer on a regular basis, the monumental upheaval of your life when you leave home, if that's something that you delight in and do, won't be as monumental or won't cause such an upheaval. It's just something that you do. You may have to change what that looks like because your schedule will change. But if you're not already doing that, there's little chance with the distractions of college or work or life in general that that will necessarily just, it's not just going to happen. You won't just fall into spending time reading the Word and spending time in prayer. That just won't be something that will sneak up on you one day and you go, oh, I've, right? You need to make a conscious effort to do that. And so Peter calls them to pray. Second, he says that above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Um, number one, it's a, it's a top priority that we love one another. He says, above all, it's a top priority. Um, the how we do that, we do it unwavering. In other words, we don't stop when things get hard. Right? We're called to love one another, but you know what? You've offended me or you've hurt me or you're hard to get a hold of. It's, just, it's hard to love you, so I'm going to stop. Peter says, no, it's... it's you undo that unwaveringly. The ESV says earnestly. Uh, but it is, it's this, it's a word that, that implies a perseverance, that it implies a moving forward, that I'm not going to stop. I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to feel it. It's not just an emotion. That word earnestly is not just an emotion. It is a consistent action over time. I'm going to love you even if you're not worthy of love, which who in here really is, ultimately. And even when it becomes difficult. And then he says, because love covers a multitude of sins. The reason we love, he tells us, because love covers sins. Now, he's not, he can't be talking about salvation. That's what Jesus does. Okay? So it's, it's not that, that my love is going to atone for your sins or forgive your sins. That's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about when he says love covers a multitude of sins? Any thoughts on that? How does my love for you cover your sins? Okay, I think it has a, a positive effect on me if my motivation is to love you. There is a, a, a less of a chance. So it covers my own sins. I think that's right. I think that's one thing that he's referring to is that 
when I love, just like last week we talked about um, if I'm willing to suffer, there's a less chance that I'm going to sin because I'm, I'm willing to suffer for Christ. That's my motivation. That sort of automatically eliminates the fact that I'm going to sin, right? Same idea. Good. What else? If we love one another like we're called to. There's, yeah, there's an idea that that sort of ends things. There's a uh, Proverbs 10:12. Back up and, and look at that for just a moment. I don't know if Peter is quoting this or referring to this. It's some very similar language. Not the exact wording, but very close. Proverbs says, Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all offenses. He uses a different word, but it's a, a synonym, certainly. And so in, in, in Proverbs, when there's an opposite, things match up one-to-one. So he's contrasting love versus hate. And then he's contrasting stirring up strife versus covering offenses, right? So let's say that, that John Michael offends me, right? My natural inclination is to want to get him back, Right? I'm going to want to say something back or do something back, cause him the same hurt that he caused me, right? That's the natural inclination of, of humanity, okay? And what that does is, and that, that stirs up strife, right? I throw something in the pot, it's got to be stirred. He's going to throw something back. I'm going to throw, right? And, we, and then he's going to drag his sister in, and I'm going to drag my daughter in. I'm going to drag Will in to be on my side, right? And all of a sudden, we've stirred up strife, it's not just between he and I anymore, right? I've, I've involved the church, stirring things up. But love, in one sense, puts a stop to that. If I love him, right, I don't have to get him back. I don't have to one-up him. I don't have to do anything else. I can just love and forgive. And that, in one sense, kind of paves over the issue. It puts a stop to it. I think it's what Peter's trying to get at here. Love puts a stop to those things that in the church tends to kind of stir up and bubble and spread and infect everybody else. Love covers that over, right? Like you have mold growing in your house and you come in and you got to treat that. you got to kill it, then you cover that area up so that it can't get out. It can't spread anymore. That's what love does. It covers sin. The third thing he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That word grumbling is, is, is the grumbling under your breath. That's what it really means. It's talking like after the fact. It's not out in front of everybody, right? It's you inviting someone over or showing hospitality or being gracious and then complaining about it the next day. <sighs> come over, they made a mess of the house. Or, I've got to clean the house again. Right? No, hospitality is an open-heartedness to someone else. That's a, a synonym. You may think, I don't, I don't know how to be hospitable, but are you open-hearted? Are, are your things your things? Or is all that you have really a, a gift of God to share with somebody else? In one sense, that's how we think about hospitality is sometimes we, we're not hospitable because we want to protect what's ours. But 
hospitality is an open-heartedness of, of my things, and I'm willing to share God's generosity and His goodness and His bounty with others within the body of Christ for their good and for the fact that that's just healthy for us to do that together, to be hospitable. That's a challenge for us in this body because we are spread out from that end of the county to that end of the county, and this is a long county. <laughs> it's difficult for us. It requires some creativity. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to traverse the county back and forth every week. What it does mean is you need to pray and ask God, how can I be hospitable knowing the limitations that we face as a body of Christ? God is the most creative person in the universe, right? You may not be able to figure it out, but if we pray and are willing to listen, He probably can encourage us and help us to figure out how can I be open-hearted to the people that I fellowship with in this body on a weekly basis. So the third thing is that we're hospitable. The last thing we're willing to serve is each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards, as good stewards, sorry, of God's varied grace. Three things to keep in mind as we think about our gifts. Okay? Because God has, has, the Bible says, gifted everyone, and the purpose of those gifts are not for you, it's for somebody else. Right? So, number one, you received that gift that you have. Whatever it is, whether that's the ability to be encouraging, whether that's the ability to serve, whether that's the ability to teach, whether that's the gift of generosity, whatever that gift is, someone gave that to you. You didn't muster it up in your own strength. You didn't create it. You may have, through a challenge of God, worked on it and refined it and, and, and made it more uh, useful through the power of the Holy Spirit. But God gave that to you. Right? So that's the first thing I have to keep in mind. The gift that I have is not mine to do with what I want. God gave it to you and He set parameters on how we do that. Number two, we're to use that gift as good stewards. What's a steward? There's a steward. It's an old-fashioned word. We don't use that word much anymore. What's a steward? A manager under someone else's authority. I can't just do what I want to do, right? I've been I've been given authority. You've been given authority over your gift, but remember, God placed you there, just like He placed Adam and Eve in the garden, to be stewards of His garden, His creation. We're all here with the gifts we've been given and the place we are as stewards. Therefore, the way that we use the gifts, how we use the gifts, when we use the gifts, really are up to God, not to us. And so again goes back to, I think, why he wants us to pray. Are you praying about God? You've given me gifts. How can I use them? In what way can I be a blessing to someone else? When do you want me to use them? To whom? Even if I don't want to do that with that person. You are God's representative on this planet. You are not an independent contractor. 
right? You are a slave. You are a servant of the Most High God. He gets to choose. Are we willing to let Him choose? Finally, he says that that service... We're supposed to be good stewards of God's varied grace. He calls those gifts grace. How are gifts grace? We didn't earn them, them, right? That's exactly right. How else? How are our gifts grace? They're undeserved. Correct. How is that grace? Oh, but wait. No, no, no. But see, I can can serve on my own. I can do good deeds on my own. I can teach on my own. That would be for you, though, instead of for God. What else would happen if I continually do things on my own? What's going to happen to me? I'm going to become prideful. What else is going to happen to me if I'm doing everything in my own strength? I'm going to burn out. Right? Jesus says that His commands are not burdensome. What He gives us is not a burden. He didn't give you a gift to wear you out. He gave you a gift and the empowerment behind that, and that's great. It's grace because it's not something that I'm going to muster up and then burn out on in a few months or a few years. Right? If I try to develop what I think is my gift, right, I'm going to fail and I'm going to become weary and I'm going to get tired. And I'm going to get bitter because you're going to keep expecting it from me. And I don't want to give it to you anymore. I love you, Mark, but I'm just, you know, I'm tired. Right? It's grace because it's not burdensome. But it's also grace because when I serve you, I mirror and I image what Jesus did on the cross. When I speak words that God has given me to speak to you, then we mirror and image Jesus Christ as He walked this planet and taught, right? When I use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given me, I picture Jesus Christ to you, and that's grace. And then as you receive that and as we grow together, that's a picture of God to the world. That's also grace. What do all these things presuppose? We're called, I think there's one more slide, I can't remember. Is there one more? Yeah. There's your, your marching orders, right? We glorify God by depending on Christ as we live lives of prayer, love, hospitality, and service. What does all that presuppose? relationship with God and a relationship with each other. Right. If I don't have a relationship with other people, then I can't serve them. I can't be hospitable to them. I certainly can't love them and I'm not going to pray for them. So it presupposes the body of Christ, foundation of which is our relationship with God. You will not, cannot... Please, God, first and foremost, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is a change of allegiance from my kingdom to His kingdom, believing in His death and the resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. 
don't know if there's anybody here that needs, needs to make that decision, needs to say, you know what, I'm living for myself. None of that's possible in a God-glorifying way without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then, none of that's possible if we're not in fellowship with one another. And again, that's the challenge for us because we're spread out so far. And Sunday mornings is not completely sufficient to do those things. And so we need to be creative and we need to be in prayer for one another and thinking, how can I love and serve my brothers and sisters in Christ with the gifts that God has given me in the place where He has placed me? And that may look different for all of us. And my encouragement and my challenge to you this morning and Peter's encouragement and challenge to us is that we would glorify God by all that we do, but depending upon our Savior Jesus Christ to do those things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for um, Your Word and the truth that is in it. God, I thank You that You intercede for us. You model what it looks like to pray because You intercede for us. You model what it looks like to love because You love the world enough to send Your Son and sacrifice and die for us. You model hospitality because You've allowed us to live on Your planet, Your creation. You've given us everything that You created that is Yours to use and enjoy. It's the variety of, of food that we have. Fruits and vegetables and grain and meat and dairy. It's the, the huge variety of beauty that you have placed in this world from trees to rocks to dirt to flowers to animals. And you've been hospitable to us. You've allowed us to share all that's yours and to use all that's yours. And you served us. You came and dwelt among us. And you taught us, and you showed us how to love, and you were generous, and you washed our feet, and you died on the cross. God, help us to be your people. First of all, to be grateful. Second of all, to depend upon you in all that we do. And then third, God, help us to joyfully give back to you and to one another. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hope that you have a wonderful week, uh, a blessed time. Remember tonight, uh, youth night here at 4.30. And then Friday we'll have a game night, have tables set up. So come and enjoy some fellowship there as well. And you are dismissed.